God has great things for us in His Word from Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 to 28. We're returning to one lesson from the book of Exodus where we've been for a number of months now and where we'll continue after our Gospel Priority Series. But returning there for one lesson which is most appropriate for us as we, as we come to the new year. And uh, you are going to love these preachers for gospel priorities. They are dear friends of mine, and you will feel very loved by them. They are men who are contagious with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then let me show you something. Look at your inside of your bulletin at the bottom of your bulletin, this note about our anniversary. On this day, this very day, 175 years ago, 21 people gathered to found Second Presbyterian Church. I was wondering if there would only be 21 this morning. I thought we were going to imitate this exactly, but I'm glad there are more of you than that. But what a great time of life. What a great time to be alive. That God has preserved His gospel witness despite us, despite our sin and our waywardness as He is faithful to His people. He has preserved us for 175 years. And it takes us appropriately to this text of God's preserving grace, His grace that endures and perseveres and overcomes despite our best efforts to forget Him and run away from Him. I trust you're encouraged as we begin reading in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. <clears throat> this day, that is the Passover shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month... From the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread." Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning." For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, 
the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. O Lord, would you lift up our weary heads, some of them weary, just physically. Our hearts are happy, but our bodies are weary. Others are weary spiritually and emotionally as well as physically. Would you especially open the words of your book, open the message of the gospel to them in a fresh way? Would you refresh us all with the good news? Enable us to celebrate and to love and to remember in a way that brings encouragement and courage for the coming year. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and all God's people said together, amen. Karen Blixen was the, the Danish author whose whose uh, life was made famous by the movie Out of Africa. She's a great author. And one of her most famous stories was a short story, Babette's Feast. The story is set in Norway, and it's in the midst of a community of very austere Lutherans, founded by a Lutheran pastor. And when he passed away, his daughters took over. He had convinced them not to marry. He had convinced them to stay with the community, not to pursue their own dreams in another place, but to carry on his vision for this community. It really was a legalistic one. The letter of the law always kills, and it had killed the joy of this community. One day on their steps, they found at this little village, they found on their steps a French woman named Babette. She was unconscious. And a, a famous opera singer had, had booked passage for her out of her land of where there was a civil war occurring. She had lost her husband and her son. He'd booked passage for her to this little community and pinned to her garments was a note Her name is Babette. She can cook. For 12 years, she served the community and she cooked their meals. They fell in love with her and she with them. And then one day at the 12th year, she received a letter from France that informed her that she had won the lottery. 10,000 francs. 
they were happy with her, but they were also sad because they assumed, presumed that she would go back to her home country. They would have to say goodbye to her. And she came to the leaders of the community and said, I've never asked anything of you. I want to make one request. I've never in 12 years asked you for anything, but here I'm going to ask you for a favor. I want you to allow me to make a traditional French feast for you. The Norwegians were nervous by that, that suggestion because they had heard that the French eat horses and frogs. They weren't so sure they wanted a French feast, but she's right. She had never asked for anything. In 12 years, they had to concede to this request. She was delighted, and soon ships began to arrive with exotic fowl and pheasants and, and strange sea creatures, even a tortoise, champagne, delicacies they had never seen before. Day for the feast came on December the 15th. And at first they were very nervous, they were very reluctant, they were very shy, reserved in their typical fashion. But then as the food began to warm their bodies, it warmed their souls too. And an amazing thing happened, a miracle occurred. There was, there was confession of sin, reconciliation of old enemies. There was a love for one another. And then something that had not been heard in their community in a very long time, there was actually laughter. Blixen says this, they felt as if their sins had been washed white as wool and dressed in these regained garments of innocence, they were gambling alike like little lambs. They were feasting with joy. At the end of the evening, one guest said this, In our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite, to be limited. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is not finite, but it's infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. Grace is infinite. And it demands nothing from us except to await it with confidence and greet it, accept it, appropriate it with gratitude. It's the message of the whole of the Bible. From Exodus to Revelation, from Genesis 2, it is the message of God's grace revealed in the Lamb, the last Lamb, the Lamb Jesus Christ, the one who is anticipated in this text, and the one who would spread a feast for us, the feast of the Lord's Supper in weekly worship, anticipating the great wedding supper of the Lamb, the feast that will never end. And that feast of grace demands, as the guest at Babette's feast said, 
It demands celebration. Celebration of our liberation in grace. It demands that we love the Lamb of God. It demands that we commit ourselves to worship in our local church, the church where Christ visits us. It demands that we respond with a commitment to this liturgy. I want you to notice the celebration that is described in verses 14 to 20, a celebration of liberation. Remember, the people of Israel, the children of Israel are still in Egypt. They have not yet been released from their, from their slavery. It's coming. It's going to come with this final plague, the, the death of the firstborn. Uh, God warned through Moses, He warned Pharaoh that if he did not obey and let his people go, that he would take his firstborn child and all the firstborn of the Egyptians who did not obey and the firstborn of the Israelites who did not obey for that matter. And the obedience was this, that they were to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and slaughter it and spread its blood on the entryway to their homes. And when the death angel saw it, he would pass over that home and give grace to the inhabitants of that home by sparing their firstborn child. But those who said that they would, who, who dared him, who, 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 who dared to face God in their own presumed innocence would surely suffer judgment. So before they were even released, God was telling the people of Israel, you will forget me. You have a predisposition to forgetting grace. He tells us the same thing. By making this a lasting ordinance, this is something that you are to celebrate forever. The other feasts, the other, uh, the other sacrifices, they'll pass away with the coming of Christ. But this feast of remembrance will never pass away. It is an enduring one. It is a lasting ordinance. And it is needful because you are a people. We are a people who have a sinful predisposition to forget that we have been redeemed. Throughout God's Word, He tells His people to remember. He, he repeats again and again and again, you must remember. And He says basically two things. You must remember, for one, that I am the Lord. He says that in, in Joshua 4.21, in Nehemiah 4.14, in Ecclesiastes 12.1, in Isaiah 46.9, in 2 Timothy 2.8. He says it many other places as well. Remember the Lord. Remember, I am the Lord. Why does he tell us to remember? Because we forget it. We forget that he is the Lord of all things. He's the Lord of history. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of our bodies. He's the Lord of our funds. He's the Lord of our finances. He's the Lord of our, of our children. He's the Lord of our marriages. He's the Lord of our relationships. He is the Lord, and we forget it. Remember. And then he tells the people of Israel, and then he later tells us the same. Remember, you were slaves. You were slaves in Egypt, and you were slaves of sin. Deuteronomy 5.15, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Ephesians 2.1. You were slaves of sin. You were slaves. Remember, you were slaves. Why does he have to tell us to remember? Because we forget it. Somehow we have this this ability 
to forget that He is Lord and to presume that we are instead, and to forget that we were saved from our slavery and hopelessness and to think that somehow we deserve to be where we are. Remember He is the Lord, and it takes the Lord to save you. It took the Lord to save you and redeem you. Don't forget it. What kind of God do you think? Or what, 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 what as, the, as the sovereign Lord, what kind of sign do you think the sovereign Lord would use to correct our selfishness, to correct our, our self-centeredness, our sense of superiority, our sense of self-righteousness, our sinful forgetfulness? What kind of sign do you think the Lord would use to remind us? A bolt of lightning, a thread of judgment, a prophet in a hairy garment, sickness, suffering. Not our God. Our God whom we constantly forget reminds us with a party. He reminds us with a feast. What kind of insane God is that? That's not the kind I would be. People kept forgetting me, giving the credit for my grace to them, to somebody else, to some other God, even to themselves. I wouldn't throw them a feast, a party. I wouldn't have them over to dinner. But our God does. Every week, He says, come sit down with me. Let me remind you of where you once were, how hopeless you were. Let me remind you of how foolish it is for you to think that you're the Lord of your life by sitting down and dining with you graciously reminding you. Continues that in the New Testament with the Lord's Supper. You know we see the same thing in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the people of God forgot the, forgot the Passover. By Joshua 5, soon after they had arrived in the Promised Land, they had the Passover. And then they don't have it again for another 800 years until Hezekiah comes on the, line, on the scene. He restores the Passover 800 years after arriving in the promised land, they forgot that they had been in slavery. And all he asked them to do was to come and dine with him. Hezekiah restores the Passover, and then it's not, it's not celebrated again for another 50 years until Josiah restores it. That's the kind of forgetful people those Old Testament people are. And we've done the same thing in church history. You can graph church history. You can graph the health and the revived nature of the church by the frequency of its celebration of the Lord's Supper. As the, as the, as the church becomes more self-righteous, as it becomes more narrow, as it becomes more provincial, as it becomes more self-centered, more racist, the frequency of the Lord's Supper declines. As the church is revived, the frequency with which the Lord's people celebrate His supper increases. I'm so grateful for, for Sandy Wilson and his, 
he gradually increased the frequency with which we celebrate the Lord's Supper through the years. And now to the, now even more recently, we celebrate every week. Tonight we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. That will be the conclusion of the Lord's Day of Worship. The evening worship with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's proof that Jesus is working in us. And, and the more we see our sin and what it took to liberate us by the substitution of the Lamb of God, the more revived we will be as a people. It's a feast, particularly, the text tells us, of unleavened bread. There are two weeks by which to celebrate Passover, and one week is, the, is called Passover. The other week is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Eventually, they, those terms became used interchangeably. And, and the Passover is set up before and after these words of, of calling, uh, calling the Old Testament people to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why, why did he go to so much trouble to tell them, you heard it over and over, get that leaven out of your houses? Make sure there's no leaven in your house. Take a candle and look in every corner of your house and see if there's any leaven. There must not be any leaven in the house. You must not eat any, unleaven, any leavening in your bread. That yeast that causes, spreads through the lump of dough and causes it to rise. It becomes a symbol for sin. It doesn't mean that eating yeast is sinful, but it's, just, it's, a, it's an analogy. God was saying, I've got to get, I've got to get you out of Egypt. I'm going to get you out of that place of sin, that place where you're being dominated and oppressed in every conceivable way and inspired by the demonic powers. I want to get you out of Egypt, but I also have to get Egypt out of you. You've taken Egypt into yourselves. You've let the, you've let the predominant culture come into you. These Israelites had worshipped idols. They had rejected Moses at times. And at times we hear it in between, we hear it in their words, we hear it some in what they said before they were taken out of Egypt, we hear it as they're in the wilderness wandering, we hear it in the rest of their history. They, they, they look at the surrounding culture and they think, they get enamored with it and they say it's so sophisticated, it's so powerful, it's so gratifying that they succumb to it. And it's none of those things. It only results in shame and oppression, addiction, and boredom. You and I are affected by the world. The Bible calls this system around us, this, this, the, the, the predominant culture, which is, predominates in every age except for a year or two here and there in the history of the world. The predominant culture of the age, inspired by demonic oppression, becomes very enticing to Christians. All Christians are affected by it. You and I are affected by it. And we think it's sophisticated, it's empowering, it's gratifying. It never is. The good news of the gospel is that that, that, that Jesus is in the work, in the business of getting Egypt out of us. Not just freeing us from Egypt, but getting Egypt out of us and showing us, according to Romans 6, that sin shall not be master over you. 
When Jesus takes you to himself, when, when you ask him to take away your sins and give you his righteousness, it's not just a, a once for all thing, it's a continual thing. And Jesus enables you to say no to sin. For the first time ever in your life, you are free to say no to sin. There may be those physical or emotional, there may be those physical uh, addictions, there may be uh, emotional brokenness or, or sexual brokenness that endures, but this much is true. You always have the power to say no to sin. It may require you reaching out to other people. It may require you reaching out to counselors. It may require other aids and assistance of God's common grace, but you are able with with Jesus living inside of you, you are no longer a victim. You're able to say no to sin because Jesus died to sin. Whenever you think that you are a victim, that you cannot say no to sin, that you are doomed to commit that sin over and over again, you're effectively saying that Jesus didn't die. Jesus did die. He died to liberate you and make you able to say no to sin. You must celebrate that liberation. And part of that celebration, part of that empowerment to do battle with sin is coming to corporate worship and engaging in the Lord's Supper. I can't explain how it happens, but the Lord meets us in a way that is peculiarly powerful in the Lord's Supper to seal to our minds the confidence the gospel brings in a way that empowers us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. You may be saying no many, many, many times until glory, but you are able to do it. Grace calls us to celebrate our liberation and we've already started down this road, but in verses 21 to 27, grace also calls us to love the Lamb of God. We love the Lamb of God because as this Passover service shows us, the Lamb of God had to be sacrificed. This Lamb that they took into their household and they built a relationship with over the course of the week, this Lamb they eventually had to slaughter, this spotless Lamb, this Lamb who had done nothing wrong had to be slaughtered on behalf of the people of God, the innocent substituted for the guilty. It was the role God assigned to lambs throughout history. Abel brought a lamb and God accepted it as a sacrifice. Abel did. Abraham, uh, when he was called to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac was substituted for by a ram. Hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of lambs were sacrificed for God's sinful people throughout history until one day John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away 
who finally takes away the sins of the world. It's a vivid, it's a vivid image in the Old Testament because the language of the, the Hebrew indicates that not only was the, the blood of the lamb spread on the lentils on the, above the door and on the doorposts on the sides of the door, but the blood dripped down onto the threshold of the door. The entire door was surrounded with blood, four points of the door surrounded by blood. It's an anticipation of the cross of Christ, blood dripping from his head, from his hands, from his feet, from his side. He is the door by which alone we enter into communion with God the Father, the Holy One. We must love him for it. We must love him because not only because he substituted his life for us in death, but he has given us life. Some of you are tempted to think that, that Jesus could not forgive you of your sins. Your sins are just too great. That one sin that's in the forefront of your mind right now, that one sin you say, Jesus could forgive every other sin, but he cannot forgive that sin. That failure is just too great as beyond the pale. I can prove to you Jesus died for your sin because he died. The wages of sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And then he says in Romans 5 that the reason every human being dies is because every human being sins. The proof that every human being sins is proven at one's funeral. Therefore, Jesus should not have died. Jesus would never have died because he never sinned. He only died. Because he became your sin. When you doubt that Jesus died for your sins, you must remember Jesus died. But don't stay there. Remember, he was raised to life. Because he died for you, he died to your sins. And because his life justified your sins, he was raised to life. And because you are united to Christ, everything that happened to him happens to you. His life has been substituted for your life. Therefore, you must live. Live in newness of life. Live in love for the Lamb by doing what he calls you to do. You have a new life. The famous French novelist Henri Barbousse fought in World War I, and he related long after the war that he overheard two soldiers talking in, in the trench, in the trenches, the trench warfare. They, he heard them talking in the trenches. One, they were best friends, and one of the soldiers was dying, dying of a mortal wound, and he called his best friend over to him, and he said, Dominic, your life is nothing. When you return, when you return to France, you're going to go back to prison. You've ruined your life. You've made many mistakes. You're a thief. You're a wanted criminal. They only let you go so that you could fight the war. And if you return, they're going to put you back in prison. Dominic, take my dog tags. Take my wallet. Take my papers. Take my identity. I'm an innocent man. Give me yours. Let me die with your reputation. 
That's what Jesus did for you. Take my identity, my life. Why are you living as if you're still enslaved to those old hates, that old bitterness, that old worry, that old fear, that old anxiety? Still in domination of that old sin, those false messages. Jesus has given you his new life. Well, why do we forget and how do we keep living in the love of the Lamb? By liturgy. Liturgy means literally the work of the people. We come to this place every week to work out. This is God's gymnasium. This is His workbench. He puts us on the workbench and He hammers us out and He chisels into us the message of the gospel. He chisels into us a, a, a liturgy that is to replace the false liturgy of the world, the false liturgy of our oppressors. You notice he entrusts it to the elders and to the fathers of these families, not because he's a patriarchal God or a patronizing God. Those things are, are bad, but because he is a father God, he is a daddy Patriarchalism is bad. Daddyism is not. God reveals himself to us as a father, and he gives us elders and pastors and, and fathers of families to lead us in worship. It's the most important thing we do, corporate worship. It's the most important thing we do. It is the engine that drives everything else in this church, when we were founded 175 years ago, they didn't build a gymnasium. They didn't build a fellowship hall. They didn't build Sunday school classrooms. They built a sanctuary, a place to worship. Wasn't much of a sanctuary, but it's what, it's what it was for. And we are blessed with these discipleship tools of youth programs and Sunday schools and, and recreation ministries and and small group Bible studies, and men's and women's Bible studies. We're blessed with all those things. But that which, is, that which is primarily prescribed in Scripture is corporate worship. The promises that are peculiarly attached to corporate worship, the warnings that are peculiarly attached to corporate worship are not repeated in any other activity of the church. If everything else had to be shut down and we only had worship, corporate worship, then we would, be, we would be sad about that, but we would have what God primarily wants us to have. If some of you with the sound of my voice or within the sound of my voice are neglecting corporate worship, then I have to warn you as a pastor that your soul is going to atrophy. You may not like the preacher, you may not like the pastors, you may not like the worship, you may not like the other people in the pews, I didn't matter. whatever is keeping you away, let me warn you, the Sunday school is no, no replacement for it. Coming and signing in and leaving at the greeting time or something like that, just dining and dashing, that's not going to worry, it's not going to help you. Tuning in, unless you're shut in. You need what God is doing here. There's a peculiar power here that is not imitated anywhere else. A peculiar power to encourage. The Bible says it. 
Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but gather all the more as you day gather it together all the more and be encouraged as you see the day drawing near. Life and death promises attached to corporate worship. We're so blessed to have corporate worship. Jamie Smith says this about worship. Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give Him our praise. We're called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes us and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do, it is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. He cuts deep grooves in us. In November 1964, anarchy broke out in the Belgian Congo. It's known now as the Democratic Republic of Congo. An Assembly of God missionary had labored there for a long time, many years. His name was J.W. Tucker. And when uh, violence broke out, when the Civil War broke out in Belgian Congo, he decided to stay. And he was eventually killed by thugs who attacked him and killed him with sticks and clubs, fists and broken bottles. They threw his body in the Bomakande River. No one knew much about his life or what was accomplished until years later, 30 years later, his best friend John Weidman came to the Congo to retrace his steps and he discovered an amazing story. He discovered that, that, um, that the uh, Mangabito tribe, which lived along the Bomakande River, the Mangabito tribe, the, the head of that tribe, was so concerned about the violence that had broken out among his people that he appealed to the central government who sent a man to them to bring law and order and his position was called the brigadier. He was called the brigadier. But the brigadier had been led to Christ by J.W. Tucker, that first missionary I mentioned. He had been led to Christ by J.W. Tucker a couple of months before he was given the job to bring law and order to the Mangabito tribe. He knew that law and order couldn't be brought by, he could, that true peace couldn't be brought by force. It had to come from the gospel. So he started preaching to no avail. In discouragement, he, he wondered what to do. And then, and then he learned about a tradition among the Mangabito. It said this, if the blood of any man flows in the Bomakande River, you must listen to his message. So the brigadier went back to the tribe and he said this. Some time ago, a man was killed and his body was thrown into the Bomakande. The crocodiles in this river ate him up. His blood flowed in your river. But before he died, he left me a message. This message concerns God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world to save people who were sinners. He died for the sins of the world. He died for my sins. 
I received this message. It changed my life. And it must change yours too. Since that day in the 90s, thousands of Mangabito have come to Christ because of the blood of the message that flowed to them. The blood of the message of the Lamb of God, the last Lamb, has come to us. God has preserved it in this church for 175 years and he's preserved it for many more centuries than that. And it's come to us. The only reasonable response is to celebrate the liberation that it brings from sin. To love that lamb and to commit yourself to the weekly repairing and reordering and rehabituating of your loves that come in weekly worship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you asking who are we that you should visit us with this so great salvation. We also humble ourselves before you and confess how often we forget And thank you for constantly reminding us, even by a gracious feast. Cause us to feast on you today in morning and evening worship. And to do so in the coming year that we might present to the world the good news of the Lamb of God. We pray in the strong name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen.